If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. For today's episode, I'm very excited to have Scott Horton with me. Scott is the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, host of Antiwar Radio on Pacifica 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, California, and, of course, host of The Scott Horton Show. He's the author of the 2021 book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, which, darn, I have a signed copy of that. I meant to have it at my desk before I started this recording to show off, and I forgot it, but it's in the background right there. You can see it right behind Scott. Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, uh, 2019 book, The Great Ron Paul, And then your latest book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And you're currently at work with a new book, right, Scott? That's right. I'm working on Provoked, How America Started the New Cold War with Russia and the Catastrophe in Ukraine. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's pertaining to today's subject that I'm very excited to get into talking with you about. For my audience, as you all can probably notice, that the direction of this show as of late I've been doing a lot of focusing on content relating to war, both kind of just generically, broadly speaking, getting into the you know libertarian theory and arguments against war, going into the Russia-Ukraine war. I've had Liam McCollum on my show a couple of times, and we've begun to unpack that together. And as the intro to this podcast says, you know, we seek to be the voice that speaks out against war and empire from a Christian and from a libertarian anarchist perspective, and to really connect those two criticisms into one cohesive argument. And although I love talking about anarchist theory and Austrian economics and going into the Bible and trying to make all those connections and you know explore different passages and theological concepts, and I'm never going to stop doing that. But just right now, with what's going on in the world, I feel especially compelled to be doing everything I can to raise awareness for these ongoing military conflicts and rising tensions. As a Christian, I believe Christ taught us to love the least of these, to care for the least of these, meaning the hungry, the thirsty, the impoverished, the sick, the needy, the imprisoned, and that what we do to the least of these, we've done unto him. And today, it just seems like the predominantly Christian majority nations in the West, that the governments, the message we're sending to Jesus is, hey, uh, we're going to blow you up, and we're going to starve you to death, and we're going to reign over you. And it just does not sit right with me in what I believe the Bible teaches us about being peacemakers, about loving our neighbors and our enemies. Jesus said not to live eye for an eye, but to turn the other cheek and to forgive people as Christ has forgiven us and to love our neighbors and our enemies. And we should be absolutely defending against the innocent. I'm not a pacifist, but to really defend against the innocent, I think we have to be in strict opposition to imperialism and statism. So, Scott, you and I have talked a little bit about this before when I talked to you over on the Mises Caucus podcast, but I've been, I've been anti-war for a long time, back from when I was a 
Bernie Sanders lefty. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, learned some Austrian economics and came over to the right side of all things. Mm-hmm. I've been talking to my listeners lately a lot about the Russia-Ukraine conflict, like I said. I've had Liam on, and we've gone a little bit into this. But I wanted to hear at the beginning, kind of get you to do a little bit of a breakdown on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And what's frustrating me lately, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like the more we try to raise awareness to the fact that this conflict between Russia and Ukraine was provoked and instigated by America and NATO and, to some extent, Ukraine's government being kind of a proxy of those two things. Mm-hmm. But it's like the more we raise awareness to that, the more the other side just seemed to keep screaming even louder, like, no, there's one person that can end this war right now, and it's Vladimir Putin. And history began yesterday, and that's all we need to worry about is just that it's a big country invading a small country. That's all there is to it. You know, you get the classic thing, you know, you're just repeating Putin talking points and all that, and people just want to bury their head in the sand. So I really want to get you to go into the Russia-Ukraine conflict and to really point out the biggest and the most blatant specific examples about how this invasion came about as a result of decades of escalating tensions and interventions from the West. And you know, maybe also in your explanation, comment on like why this is being rejected by the mainstream media or like what their supposed counter narrative is. Sure. All right, well, there's a lot there, but I'm going to start by sort of changing the subject by way of analogy to the war on terrorism as it was getting started 20 years ago, where they said that, look, Osama bin Laden hates us because we're innocent and free and white and Christian and love our mamas a lot. And so what do you expect us to do? Stop loving our mamas? Obviously, we have no choice but to defend our country from this completely irrational fundamentally religious and therefore not even arguing of this world at all, but just this radical Islamic mind virus that's taken over these men and turned them into psychopathic suicide killers and all of this stuff. And that was the story. And if you said, come on, man, everybody knows Bill Clinton was bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi for 10 years before that, they just shout you down. These are, I don't know if they said Saddam's talking points, but pretty much that was the argument. And if there was even any room in the discussion at all for Bush isn't being all the way honest with us about the true motive here, it was that Bush is not honestly telling the people the truth, that Islam is the religion of Satan. And this whole thing is us and the Jews against them to force Jesus to come back and end the world now on our terms, because nobody wants to die alone. And John Hagee said that this is, the way to go. And this is the consensus. I mean, this is the dominant ideology in the country. And if you said the obvious, which is we've been bombing Iraq for 10 years, we had inspectors crawling over every inch of that country. We know what they don't have. We know that Saddam Hussein wears a beret like a Frenchman and shaves his chin every morning and that him and Osama bin Laden, they're just not the same at all. In fact, I've been running, you might've seen on Twitter, I've been running old Justin Romando articles with the hashtag Romando 20 years ago. And he just wrote one about Bush and bin Laden, brothers in arms invading Iraq. And it was about how this is circa the third week of February 2003 that bin Laden put out a podcast saying all good Iraqis should rise up against Saddam Hussein and the United States. 
that socialist infidel Saddam Hussein, he has to go, bin Laden said. And this is four weeks before the invasion. As plain as day. These guys are not friends. And then they just did it anyway. And they just buffaloed people. And essentially what it came down to was like peer pressure, right? It came down to social psychology. If you're a patriot and you love God and you love your mom and you love the red, white, and blue and you love sports and trucks, then you're for this war. And if you're not for this war, then you must be some kind of commie, pinko, homosexual from San Francisco or something who just hates America and hopes the commies and the jihadi terrorists win. Yeah. And nobody was allowed to just be right and just have a reasonable argument and say what the truth was. That wasn't allowed. Phil Donahue and Jesse Ventura both had shows on MSNBC and they were both just fired and removed because they both knew better and they just excluded anyone who knows better from having a part of the conversation. So they could just build this consensus that anyone who has an opinion, who knows anything about it, and who isn't just a wimp and a loser, knows that we have to do this. In fact, the only dissent they would allow on TV was the guy that played BJ Honeycutt on MASH and the lady that played the secretary on the Larry Sanders show. And they would let them on to say, see, this dumb lady who obviously doesn't know anything says we shouldn't do it. Next up, a three-star general about why we have to, right? And it was all lies. It was all completely crazy. It'd be like if I came up with an argument why we need to declare war against you. That was how bogus the case against Iraq was in 2003, okay? It was just pure lies. And the people, the entire consensus was wrong. And go back 10 years. Look what they did in Syria. We're fighting for the moderate rebels. We're backing the moderate rebels. Well, after three years of that, the moderate rebels became the Islamic caliphate that they had pretended existed that they were going to war with in the first place 10 years before. And it wasn't until Bush did Iraq and Obama did Syria that they ended up creating the caliphate forum. Then they had to launch Iraq War III to destroy it again. Then we just went through and just think weapons of mass destruction is almost nothing compared to Russiagate. Think about the consensus that they built in the minds of what, like more than half, right? Maybe barely more than half, but certainly the left half of America, 150 million people and change were made to believe that the Russians did a coup d'etat and overthrew Hillary Clinton for Donald Trump. That essentially that Russia had accomplished a color-coded revolution in America somehow and astroturfed their candidate Trump in against the lady who really should have won and all of this. It's completely crazy, completely crazy. And you can go down the list, and I know that Aaron Monte is writing a book about this right now. I'll tell you, in my book, I have just one section on Russiagate, and I haven't counted them all up, but it must be three, four dozen, five, six dozen lies, a major lie, all of it, just like the case against Iraq. Zero times a hundred, still zero. It's the same thing, okay? And they do this with everything, right? They do this with people who are like into nutrition and health and whatever. The huge scandal of the century, right, is that all the propaganda was you're supposed to eat nothing but wheat all day. And then people figured out that actually that's not right. Or think about the COVID thing. Everybody's so upset. They said, you have to lock down for this long. You have to wear a mask. Your kid has to wear a mask. You got to stand six feet apart. You have to do all these rules. You have to shut down all these industries, but Home Depot can stay open, but not you. And all these things. 
And now more and more people understand and agree with the new consensus, which is, oops, we really should have never done that either. Well, why does this keep happening to us? Jacob, there's something wrong here, right? And right. The answer, look, is the answer is, as Robert Higgs, of course, would say, that all government is based on fear, and ours especially. They got to keep you terrified at the bottom line, no matter what, even on the nicest day. They got to keep you afraid that if it wasn't for them, a worse government than them would replace them. At the very least, that's the basis of their fear. And then everything else, and especially in this society, is just panic after panic after panic. And then every time this happens, people look back and they go, oh, geez. They're saying the big news this week is that the new consensus in the federal government is that, oh, it was a lab leak after all. Them Chinese did it. Even though everybody knows that it was an American-funded lab in China doing the work that Obama tried to stop them from doing, and they just went around him by calling it an emergency and outsourcing it to China. So it's anybody's fault. It's still Anthony Fauci and the U.S. government. But as anyone can remember, you get thrown right off the internet for saying that stuff a year and a half ago. Yeah. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. It's just not quite right then. (laughs) Or is the consensus not right now? And who are the arbiters of these things? Liars. That's who. So now I'm not dodging your question, but I'm just trying to set because I I have answers. My book is 500 (laughs) pages and counting 540 pages and counting so far. I'll give you the abridged version, but I'm just trying to illustrate that, yeah, there's something really wrong with the way that they keep doing this. And I skipped Libya, too. They did a whole scare about how Gaddafi was passing out Viagra to his army to rape every woman and girl across Libya on his way to go and kill the entire population of the city of Benghazi, 700,000 people. Imagine the city of Charlotte wiped off the face of the earth, Barack Obama threatened. We have to stop him, okay? they do this over and over again. Right. Now, in this case, sort of like with the China threat, supposed threat, I will concede to your audience that Russia does exist in a way that Osama bin Laden's Islamo-fascist caliphate that was coming for us never did. Okay? So, is there a powerful state here with a powerful military? And yes, nuclear weapons. Uh, and that has enough power and influence to wield power and influence over smaller states near it? And these kinds of questions, of course. Same thing with China. I'm not disputing that. I'm not naive, and I'm not here to spin for any other country's government. If I hate my own government, I sure as hell ain't carrying water for any other one. Some people get that backwards. They start favoring the other governments more. Not me. I hate them even more than I hate my own government, which is infinite. So calculate that. I got no regard for their side of the story other than just to understand what's going on. And the reality is, Jacob, as everybody knows, that we're number one. We are the superpower. There used to be two superpowers, and then the Soviet Union fell all the effing way apart, and now there's just the one superpower, us. Charles Krauthammer wrote in Foreign Affairs in 1990. This is our unipolar moment. That's before the Soviet Union was even gone. So unipolar, it might have been 91, but he was writing this way in 1992 in the national interest. In 1990, T-O-O, he was writing in the national interest in 1990. We should achieve world domination. Now is our chance to, and as Sabine Brzezinski said, the United States of America is the first truly global power. Because even when Britain was a truly global power, it was still, it waxed and waned in different places of the earth at times. 
Brzezinski said, look, America is the dominant force on every other continent on the planet. Politically, militarily, economically, what we say goes. I was H.W. Bush. That's the new world order. What we say goes because the Soviet Union is not there to stop us anymore. And they wrote in the Defense Department under Dick Cheney, under H.W. Bush in 1992, defense planning guidance that installed, it's, it's just a Pentagon memo and it's the cornerstone of American security policy in the post-Cold War world. And what it says is that we will not tolerate any other powers on earth with the ability to challenge us. That we will not allow for a near-peer competitor. And that if any country tries to achieve a military capacity to challenge us or even to create regional alliances that would seem to give them that ability, that we will preempt them first. We will take them out first. We'll find a way to prevent that from happening. We will have, as they say, preeminence, predominance, hegemony, full-spectrum dominance. That's Pentagon speak for it. Michelle Flournoy and them in the 1990s. And that means that when Yeltsin is in charge of Russia, great. And when he's not, and the new guy declares independence from us, then he's got to go. We're just not going to tolerate the northern half of Asia being in the, ha in the hands of some guy who's just not compliant with our goals. We're just not going to have it. And it's the same thing with China. People talk about China as though China is now this massive rising power taking over the world. Well, come on, man. I, they're doing okay. But what is the evidence that they're rising to take over the world? Well, all that's happening is people are panicking about America's waning influence. But what happened to it? Well, our government blew our entire wad in the Middle East, mostly, and sacrificed all that money and all that power and influence, helped precipitate the economic crash through all the inflationary money that they printed to make those wars seem free in the Bush years and cause a massive crisis of confidence, you know, in the world, in America's leadership, as they say. And then Donald Trump came and he didn't believe in this stuff. I mean, boy, did they ever push him to stay the course on almost everything. But he really did have to kind of be talked into this idea that, it's in our interest to entirely pick up the tab for Korea, Japan, and Germany's military budget. Why should we, you know, he's just looking at it in economic terms. They're looking at it like that influence is worth any price if, that we have to pay, you and I, right, to, to keep their influence there. And so the policy in obviously the Middle East was expanding America's footprint, as they say, and achieving hegemony there. And it's the same thing in Eastern Europe, that the Soviets made this deal as their empire was falling apart. And the Americans were saying, listen, you're going to withdraw from Germany, right? So we need you to agree that we want to reunify Germany. And they said, well, would you prefer a reunified Germany inside NATO or outside NATO? In other words, under American domination or just free to do their own thing? And Gorbachev said, well, no, I'd like Germany to stay in NATO. And they said, all right, well, look, if you'll pull your forces out of Germany and allow us to reunify Germany, we promise not to expand our forces one inch east. Now, it's true at that moment, what they were talking about was inside Germany, but it's still applied for everything east of there anyway. And I got the million footnotes. Anybody can read all this stuff in the National Security Archive. Well, but Scott, it wasn't written down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, so that was the thing is they denied it for a very long time, but then the scholars right. went and found all the stuff. Yeah. And and they got a lot of it declassified. And against George Washington University National Security Archive, 
start with what Gorbachev heard and what Yeltsin heard. And then they just have all the documents there for you to see. And you can see how, well, to make a pun, Douglas Heard, the British foreign minister, was one of more than a dozen officials from the United States, Germany, France, and Britain who all told the Soviets over and over and over again, we're not going to expand NATO one inch east, not in Germany and not east of Germany into Poland. I mean, they named Poland and certainly the Baltics. Forget about it. There's no way we're even going to try that. And so that was clear. And they broke the promise. Essentially, they didn't make it part of the treaty. And, but it's absolutely clear from the scholarship from especially Joshua Schifferinson, but some of the others, even maybe despite their conclusions, but from their work that they've shown, but Schifferinson, I think, is the best on this, that the Russians absolutely made the decision. You can time on the chronology when they announced at their press conferences what's going on and everything, that they clearly made this deal with Baker based on that assurance. It was based on his promise, not one inch. Robert Gates was telling the head of the KGB the same thing at the exact same time in Moscow not one inch. And it was based on that that they agreed to withdraw their army from Germany and then eventually from the rest of Eastern Europe and then even the Soviet republics. And which, by the way, the Bush administration, to them, Eastern Europe was as far as Bulgaria and Romania and Poland, but didn't include the Baltics or Ukraine or Belarus. They would go, they would say, we're not talking about Ukraine. We're just talking about Eastern Europe. Because Ukraine is east of what they used to call Eastern Europe. But anyway, so that's the big thing, is the spread of America's military alliance right onto Russia's doorstep. So the first round was in 99. They brought in Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. And then, well, I don't want to leave too much out, so I'll just say very briefly. Also in the 1990s, Bill Clinton's government did back the Bin Ladenite Mujahideen in Bosnia and in Kosovo. That's where two of the September 11th hijackers and the lead planner, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, had all earned their stripes fighting for Osama and Bill together in 95 in Bosnia. But then he also backed the terrorists in Chechnya in the Second Chechen War beginning in 1999 or maybe 80, 98 against the Russians there. And recently Putin's brought that up a couple of times. And it's interesting the way he brings it up because it sounds like conspiracy theory stuff. And I think he knows that. He doesn't want people to write it off. So two different times I've heard him address it. And he says, listen, let's be adults about this. The Americans did back those terrorists in Chechnya. We know that they did. But that's the way he sets it up. Is like, let's not be tinfoil hat kooks about this. Let's be adults about this. Come on. You know they would too do that. And they did. That's the way he says it. And he's totally right. And I got all the proof in the world. And hell, I didn't do it. I was, I'm just collecting footnotes for you, man. But anyway, and then, of course, the shock therapy economic policy was completely disastrous. And they rigged the election in 96 when the people of Russia tried to throw Yeltsin out and his cronies out. They rigged the election, colluded, you could say, to keep him in power there. And then that led directly to the rise of Vladimir Putin, who was part of the so-called family of Boris Yeltsin's buddies and cronies and made his rise to power helping a guy get out of the country when he was wanted for a felony. The mayor of St. Petersburg, I think, is, you know, how he made his rise to powers. He was the can-do, fix-it man for the power elite of Russia of the 90s. And that's how he came to power there. Then W. Bush comes in and he's the worst man because 
he, first of all, tears up the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which the anti-ballistic missile treaty was Nixon from 72. And so we can have, I think it says we can have one anti-ballistic missile station each. And Bush said nuts to that, tore that up because we want to build anti-ballistic missile systems everywhere, including in Romania and Poland, where Bill Clinton had promised the Russians in 1997 that we would not, okay, yes, we're going to expand NATO, but we're not going to put our military equipment in the new Eastern European countries. Oh, scratch that. It's what, four years later? And W. Bush goes, screw you, man. We are too doing that. And announces, it may have been a little, may have been five years later, announces they're going to put these anti-ballistic missile systems in Romania and Poland. So here's the thing about that. These launchers, they're called the MK-41 or Mark-41 missile launchers. Well, they can shoot all different kinds of missiles, not just anti-ballistic missile missiles. And one of the things that they can fire is a Tomahawk cruise missile. And those can, although under the INF Treaty, they were not armed with nukes, but they can be tipped with hydrogen bombs. And so look at Poland on a map from Moscow, and you can see how this is upsetting the balance of nuclear terror, as they call it, in Europe. And Putin said this over and over again. Why are you doing this? George W. Bush said, come on, how could this be for shooting down a nuclear first strike from Russia or a nuclear attack at all, even a retaliatory strike from Russia, when we have nearly enough missiles to shoot down a salvo from Russia? So it can't be for that. Trust me, this is for Iran. We think Iran is going to build a nuke and shoot it at Western Europe. I mean, this is just crazy. Iran doesn't have nukes, can't make, well, they probably could make a nuke, but they're not making nukes. And they certainly are not making missiles that can reach Western Europe or even Eastern Europe. I mean, look at a map of where Iran is compared to Poland. These are not historical enemies, man. There is, and and it's far out of their range of their best missiles. So Putin said to Bush, okay, fine. You say that they're not for shooting down and making our deterrent moot. I don't believe you that they're for Iran. So what are they for? Well, it must be because they're dual-use launchers and you want to put nuclear-tipped cruise missiles in there. That's my fear. What do you expect me to do? Act like that's not a concern? I'm acting like it's a concern. He said that for years and years and years, back when everybody still liked him, Jacob. It's okay to quote, you know? He said that this whole century long. And then W. Bush, really, Bill Clinton started this with Serbia in 2000, but W. Bush really picked up the color-coded revolutions. And this is where... The NED, which is sort of a CIA front in cooperation with these major NGOs, especially George Soros and then later Pierre Omidyar, they come in and they essentially do a coup d'etat dressed up like a people power revolution. It's like an astroturf revolution. And they did this in Serbia in 2000, what was called the bulldozer revolution. And then in Georgia in 2003 was the Rose Revolution. In Ukraine in 2004 was the Orange Revolution where they prevented this guy Yanukovych from taking office, claiming, unproven, that he had stole the election. I should say it's just as likely that he stole it as not. But anyway, they clearly had an agenda when they lied and claimed that he stole it and didn't prove it and prevented him from taking power and got their guy in instead. He's the same guy who later won in 2010 and was overthrown in the coup d'etat of 2014, which we're going to get back to. Okay, But the first one was W. Bush, the Orange Revolution in 2004. So then they tried to do the Cedar Revolution in Lebanon and the Denim Revolution in Belarus. Both of those failed. Those were both also in 2005. 
but then they did Kyrgyzstan in 2005 at the toward the end of 2005, and that one did work and overthrew the government there. It didn't last; it lasted three or four years, and things fell apart. But anyway, so that was another huge part of it. And looking at that from Moscow and from their point of view, you can see why they're freaking out that the Americans are absolutely relentless here. Anytime somebody in a democracy or even like kind of a pseudo-democracy where they're trying to hold elections and get their act together and move into the 20th century finally, these ex-communist states in many cases, when the wrong guy wins, the Americans just cancel it. All their talk, especially W. Bush, all his talk about democracy, boy, if the wrong guy wins, look out, because they don't play games, these guys. And they do it over and over again. You can see it was a huge threat from Russia's point of view that we won't tolerate someone who tolerates Russia in their own near abroad, 7,000 miles from our home. And of course, he turns the entire Middle East upside down and vastly increases the Al-Qaeda threat to Western Europe and Eastern Europe and including Russia as well, who've had their problems with these jihadis ever since America and Saudi started backing the jihadis against them in 1979 and still have ongoing problems this whole time. So that's a big one. And then what am I leaving out from W. Bush chapter here, man? I'm sure I'm facing out something important, but that's the big stuff is the color-coded revolutions. Oh, and yeah, of course, NATO expansion brought nine more countries into NATO and including the Baltic states right on Russia's border. As Pat Buchanan pointed out in time to warn before it happened that look at this little piece of land, Kaliningrad, which is adjacent to Lithuania and Poland on the Baltic Sea. It's separated from Russia by Lithuania and Belarus. Now, Belarus is a loyal client state of Russia, so that doesn't make too much of a difference. But it's completely landlocked behind a NATO country now. And two NATO countries, Poland, Lithuania, both. So in other words, from Russia's point of view, their strip of land over there, their major port on the Black Sea there is behind NATO lines. That was Pat Buchanan's words in 24 years ago. Now, we should not be doing this. Look at what a position we're putting them in. And this came up in the war last year that the Lithuanians said, oh, we're going to start enforcing all these EU sanctions. Now we got big, bad America to back us up. They started talking all tough and they don't really have a corridor like a highway or something. They have a railway that runs from Belarus to Kaliningrad. And the Lithuanians started intercepting the train and inspecting it and holding it and saying they're enforcing sanctions. And the Russians started getting really mad. This is how World War II started. Right? Was Hitler demanding his corridor to Danzig? If you're not going to give me access to Danzig, I'm going to take it, damn it. And that 60 million people were killed. Well, I mean, the Japan thing was already going on in the East. That's separate. But still, tens of millions of people were killed based on a war that broke out over a fight over a corridor and access to the North Seas there in World War II. So it's a hugely just dangerous proposition. And you see, you got to look at it from the point of view of Madeleine Albright or somebody like that, right? That to them, first of all, this is like a social scene, right? This is a cocktail party circuit for fancy pants people from across Europe to come together at their fancy hotels and dress nice and drink things together and whatever like they do, right? So that's a huge part of it. And you can see the benefit, at least on the surface of it, until it leads to a war. You can see how, from their argument, by bringing all these countries into this alliance with us, it really precludes them from fighting with each other. It also precludes them from endorsing military dictatorship or it precludes their militaries from even trying to do a coup 
because you have to have a civilian head of your military to be part of NATO, right? So they're like normalizing things that are, that should be normalized. Like you shouldn't have a military dictatorship in your country and stuff like that. But they're claiming all the credit for it and saying, yeah, if it wasn't for us, all these countries would break out in fighting and all this. And it wasn't for us doing it exactly this way through NATO expansion. And now to go back to H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, they originally had this program called the Partnership for Peace, which was supposed to be less of an alliance, a looser agreement, but there's no enemies around anyway. So it's supposed to be what they call like this common security architecture for Europe, which would have included Ukraine and Russia both. And I don't think it would have had like an Article 5 war guarantee, but it would have had something like a pale imitation of that. And that this would have been along the lines of what many of the wisest critics at the time said we should do is make sure to, in fact, I think Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense said we should bring Russia into NATO first. Then we'll bring in the Eastern European states between us and them. That way, it's not like we're just expanding this alliance at their expense and right into their former sphere of influence and right up into their face this way. So this was another approach, in other words. So, of course, I'm a non-interventionist and I would have abolished NATO immediately at the end of the Cold War and that would be that. But I'm just pointing out that there were plenty of people inside the American system who thought better than to do it the way that they did it. Right. But they went ahead anyway, mostly for the lucky dollars and Polish votes in Illinois was what it came down to was ridiculous parochial concerns, not grand strategy at all. And then, so W. Bush in 2008 announces at the Bucharest summit where they're finally bringing in the nine nations. He announces that they're going to seek an agreement to bring in Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. Uh, Georgia is this tiny little country. We usually call it former Soviet Georgia. So people know we're not talking about the state that any American cares about. We're talking about this tiny little country south of the Caucasus Mountains in the land between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea there, north of Iran. And so this is far from the North Atlantic, which is what our treaty is named after. You might have thought the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was America, Iceland, Britain, Spain, France, maybe Morocco. No. Anyway, so this is just obviously such a bridge too far. And everybody told W. Bush not to do it. And you might be familiar with this lady, Fiona Hill, the British lady who's supposedly the Russia expert that you see on TV all the time. And she worked for W. Bush on the National Security Council. She worked for Donald Trump. She testified against Trump during impeachment, during the Ukraine gate scam, ridiculous garbage. And uh, anyway, she has this whole thing that she told the New York Times, which, you know, it's self-aggrandizing, but I believe her story because it's specific enough the way she tells it. She's telling W. Bush, don't bring Georgia and Ukraine. Don't talk about bringing them in. You're, we're not doing it. We can't do it. It's a bridge too far. She and the National Security Council experts and the Central Intelligence Agency analysts and everyone, they had met and they had discussed and they had assessed that this is a really bad idea. This wasn't just like her opinion. She was like delivering the official opinion of the Russia hands in the government. We should not be doing this. And according to her, Dick Cheney says, oh, you don't believe in democracy? And storms out. God. Yeah, I, yeah. You gotta love how they use 
democracy like this club, but it's like, hey, you're free to choose your own leaders and choose your own path. But then the subtext is like, as long as you choose what we want That's you to exactly choose. That's exactly right. You better look out, <laughs> boy. You hope you don't vote for Hamas. You're going to get bombed. Yeah. <laughs> In an election that Condoleezza Rice insisted that they hold. Anyway, that's a tangent. Don't let me go on that one. So Cheney storms out and she says to W. Bush, look, the Russians are there will be so upset about this and it's going to cause a bad reaction and we should not do it. And then she adds, and that's why Germany and France are also against it. And then what does W. Bush do? And this is why I believe her, because this sounds exactly like what W. Bush would say, right? He says, oh, well, I like a good diplomatic challenge. In other words, never mind a word, never mind a syllable out of her mouth about Russia and their concerns about bringing Ukraine and Georgia into NATO and what kind of problems that could cause. The only thing out of her mouth that he heard was he now has a task before him to try to convince France and Germany to go along with it. Oh, well, I like arguing with that Angela Merkel. I'll just argue with her a little bit and I bet I can win her over, which didn't work, right? But in other words, he was just dismissing Fiona Hill's concerns. Now, what's funny is if you were to quote Fiona Hill at Fiona Hill right now, she would call those Russian talking points and say that you're an apologist for the aggressor in this thing, even though she's the source for that story. And of course, you know, our current CIA director at the time was the ambassador, William Burns is his name. He was the ambassador to Russia at the time. And he wrote the famous memo that you can find on WikiLeaks. Yet means yet from the beginning of February of 2008, where he says, look, I met with Sergei Lavrov and he told me, man, they're really not kidding. They're not going to let you do this. We can't do this. Don't do this. And that if you do this, this could cause a civil war and the Russians then would have to intervene, which is something that they don't want to have to do. This is four months before Bush goes ahead and does it anyway. And Rice goes ahead and does it anyway. And now they didn't bring him in because Germany and France said no. So what they do, they just issue this communique, the Bucharest statement or memorandum declaring, or not memorandum, that's Budapest, but the Bucharest statement saying that we are going to do this sooner or later and we're on the path. And they did, in fact, start then with military advice and aid more money and helping to normalize their forces and begin to prepare them to for what they call interoperability, for integrating their military into NATO and making them a de facto member one way or the other. And they did that then. And then four months later, people blame Putin for this. So the way I remember it is, Georgia started the war. And in fact, the New York Times, they admitted it. That's what happened. But now I have read reports to say that there were some provocations by the Russians across the border in a way where they were trying to sort of psych out Mikhail Shakashvili, the guy that Bush had installed in power five years before in 2003 in the Rose Revolution and kind of goading him into doing the thing. So there could be, I need to dig deeper into that. I'm not so sure about that. But I guess the reason I bring that up is because my point is that let's say that that is true. Like what McCain and all them said at the time that like, oh, this is just Russian aggression, Russian aggression. That, that wasn't true. Georgia moved on this breakaway province of South Ossetia first and they bombed Russian peacekeepers who were there under a deal supervised by the UN, pardon me, by the European Union, our allies before. So it was a legitimate deal that had Russian troops there. And 
they got killed. And then they struck back. That was the chronology of what happened when the war broke out in early August. So the McCain version that like, oh, just Russian aggression. Well, that was a total lie. But okay, let's go with, let's give the Hawks half credit and say, well, the Russians were provoking them and trying to get Georgia, Mikhail Shakashvili to do something stupid so that they could attack. Okay, for the sake of argument, why would Putin have done that? Well, obviously, in direct reaction to Bush offering to try to bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO four months before. That's why. I think the much more plausible explanation of the story, although there may still be a small bit of truth to that, is that Shakashvili had an unresolved border dispute. And he can't join NATO if you have an unresolved border dispute. And he had these two breakaway provinces, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And he wanted to solve that problem so that he could get into NATO. And so he had to try to make his move. It's notable at the time that Dick Cheney proposed when the Russians started coming through the Roki Tunnel under the Caucasus Mountains, Dick Cheney urged George Bush to launch missiles and strike the tunnel and collapse the tunnel on the Russian soldiers coming through, and which could have led directly to war with Russia right then and there. As a direct consequence, it's just a couple of months later, And thankfully, by that time, Bush wasn't listening to Cheney. And Stephen Hadley, I think, was riding herd on Cheney at that time and said, no, we're not doing that. So thank God for that. Then Barack Obama comes. Now, Barack Obama does a lot of things, but most especially he does Syria, which is the ugliest dang thing that happened. And it's as bad as Iraq War II or Yemen and put America in a state of high treason on the side of the bin Ladenites against the Shiites and their allies there and ended up leading to the caliphate and eventually by the end of 2015, Russian intervention in Syria to save the secular Assad regime. Again, here's a guy, not just wears a beret, this guy wears a three-piece suit, shaves his chin every morning and they got us back on the suicide bombers against him. And the Russians come and say, no, that's enough of that. And it's all in my book. You can read it if you need the details there. It's in enough already. And... Serious, the chapter that gets people throwing that thing across the room, not because they're mad at me, but maybe a little. Guy won a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. (laughs) I should get one of those and burn it. I should get one of those and start a war. (laughs) Right. But what he really does, the worst thing that Obama does is in 2014, his government overthrows the government of Ukraine again. Now, what happened was the Europeans and the Russians were in a fight with each other basically, over, well, not with each other, but we're both pressuring Ukraine to sign a deal with them and not the other guy. And at both at times, both sides contradicted that and said, no, you can have a deal with the other guy. But most of the time, I think they were contradicting that and saying, no, you can't. And we're driving a much harder bargain. And the IMF and the Germans and the Europeans, they were driving a much harder bargain uh, than the Russians were. And the Russians were ready to loan money on easy terms and all of this. And so even though Yanukovych, who was from the Russian-leaning sort of party of regions and had been the guy that America did the revolution against the phony revolution in 2004, he was leaning toward doing the deal. In fact, Paul Manafort, who was supposedly the scandalous tide of Vladimir Putin because he worked for this guy Yanukovych, he was trying to convince Yanukovych to sign the damn deal with the EU. So if anything... Like, I don't, I'm not accusing him of this or whatever, but I'm just saying it would be plausible if you said that 
Manafort was actually acting as a CIA asset at that time. Like, even if he had the job, like it's very plausible that the CIA would have said to him, hey, keep doing a good job trying to convince this guy to join up with the EU side, because that is apparently what he was doing there. So some agent of Vladimir Putin, Manafort is, for just one of a million Russiagate lies. It's just unbelievable what they do with that story. It's just, it's one hair less than shooting Trump in the face in Dallas, the way somebody did Jack Kennedy back before to frame him for treason with the Kremlin based on such ridiculous lies the way that they did. It's, I'm not over it. It's like Waco or something. It bothers me, man. Anyway, so what happens is he ends up choosing Russia instead of the EU for his deal. And at that time, a bunch of astroturfed, bankrolled by American NGOs and the National Endowment for Democracy and so forth groups came and started holding these protest rallies out in what's called the Maidan, which is like the big town square in Kiev, the capital city. And then the millions of dollars flowed in and turned the whole thing into a giant carnival that lasted for months through the entire winter of 2013-2014 until it finally devolved into a street putsch, essentially a violent right-wing putsch in the end of February of 2014. And so the Americans, Victoria Newland, famously a Robert Kagan's wife and formerly Middle East advisor and foreign policy advisor to Dick Cheney, was then working for Obama. And she was caught on tape, essentially planning the new government with Jeffrey Pyatt, who was the ambassador to Ukraine at the time. And they're essentially saying that, you listen to the whole thing, with the way that they talk about how it's up to them to decide who's going to take power here and how they need to hurry up and glue this thing. I think we're in play, but we need to glue this thing and we need to midwife it and we need to make it sail and we got to get this thing together and make it happen so that those first three or four were direct quotes so that we can have our guys in before... Putin can figure out how to react and do anything about it. And Pyatt says, we got to make this thing sail before Putin can torpedo it. So he's mixing his metaphors there, but that's not my fault. That's the way he says it. So that's what they're talking about. Now, I'll give the devil his due. And that's Kathy Young over at the bulwark. She says, come on, they're not talking about a coup. They're talking about negotiations. And that in the negotiations, they want this guy to be the new prime minister. Yatsenyuk was his name. And they want this and that guy to hold whatever position. But they're not talking about after we overthrow the government. They actually don't say in the call, after we overthrow the government, this is who we want in there, right? Um, but here's the thing about that, which falsifies that explanation right away, which is that the three main leaders of the protest movement all explicitly rejected that offer of compromise by the sitting president earlier that day, or maybe even the day before. They just said, there's no way in the world that we're going to take this deal with this guy. He's got to leave. And so it just makes no sense. And then I'm sorry, I have one more point to debunk that, that I forgot now. It's in the book. But, and it's certainly clear that, well, first of all, the famous part of that call, the F the EU, is she's saying, they're taking too long to do this, or they don't even want to do this. They're trying to like come up with a workable compromise. But we want to do it our way. So she says, F the EU, what we'll do is we'll get this guy, Robert Sari from the UN to come in, and we're going to get Biden on the phone. I just talked to Jake Sullivan, you know, our current national security advisor. He was then Vice President Biden's national security advisor, former right-hand man to Hillary Clinton. 
before she left and when she was Secretary of State. And she says, I just got off the phone with Jake Sullivan and he says that Biden is willing. So we're going to get together tomorrow with a conference call with Biden and the principals here so he can give them an attaboy and get the deets to stick. In other words, to tell them, look, guys, I'm the vice president of the United States and I say this is going to work if you stick with our plan, basically, right? You better do what we want and we'll help you get what you want. And so this is, call it what you want. If there's more French terms to choose from for overthrowing a government in this fashion. Um, And then when it came down to it, when they finally did come to a deal where he agreed that he would hold a new election in December, Nazis got up on the stage from right sector and the so-called self-defense unit. And they said, we do not accept this deal. And we are armed to the teeth. And the one guy says, so help me God, if Yanukovych doesn't leave power tonight, we are going there armed to kill him tomorrow morning. And mark my words. And it was only then, see, part of the deal was he had to pull all his police back. Well, but the actual neo-Nazis leading the bloody edge of the protest movement on the Maidan, they didn't respect that deal. They said, oh, you pull all your police back? And I guess the police got the idea that once they were getting pulled back and enough of them had gone home, the rest of them went home too because there weren't enough of them for forced protection even at that point. So everybody, I guess, just kind of bailed. And then the next morning, the or maybe even that night, he fled and they came and they seized all the government buildings. And I remember the night that it happened, Max Blumenthal, I don't know what Twitter feed he was following, but he got pictures right away where they were putting up Confederate flags, Celtic crosses and swastikas and SS lightning bolts and hanging up these flags inside the city council building there in Kiev. And when they were finally chased out of there, they went and took refuge in the Canadian embassy, these guys. And I'm going to not go into all the details, but yes, they're Nazis. They are proud grandsons of the Galatian SS that served Hitler and helped perpetrate the Holocaust in the Second World War. We can get back to that if you want to follow up on that. But there were Ukrainians who sided with the German Nazis against the Soviet communists in World War II and committed massive, just absolutely unbelievable atrocities against civilian Jews and Poles and killed between 800,000 and a million I've seen different numbers. I'm not sure which is the correct one, but I guess a minimum of 800,000 Jews were killed by the Nazis and some large number of at least tens of thousands of those were killed by these Ukrainian militias that are essentially the, well, let's see, and then after, see, I did start talking about, I said I wasn't going to. After the war, the CIA inherited them and used them against the Soviet Union and kept that relation going with these groups. I mean, didn't always use them in, violent attacks. I think they did through the 50s, you know, maybe later than that. But they kept a relationship with these groups all the way through the Cold War until it ended in the late 80s. And so these are, you can trace the lineage directly back from the Svoboda Party and the National Corps straight to the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists that served Hitler in the war. And, you know, later what was called the Ukrainian Insurgent Army during the Cold War. That's who they are. They're the grandsons of actual Nazis. And I'm not saying, and I think people do maybe embellish this sometimes or they don't really understand. I'm not saying that the whole leadership cast of the Ukrainian government are all Nazis, but boy, after the coup, 10 of them were. And there are some of them sit in the parliament and they have a huge amount of power inside the military 
they have still their times where they have these massive militias who the military says, disarm and join the military. And they go, no, we stay, we're staying armed. We're staying independent. You can't do anything about it. And the military says, oh, okay, never mind. And you don't, you just don't have Jacob anywhere in the world standing forces of avowed Hitler-loving Nazis who, you know, even when they're integrated into the military, they're integrated as a force, right? Like there are American Nazis join the army sometimes, but you don't have like the fourth Aryan nations division, right? right, That goes and serves on the front in formation in that way. The idea that this is happening in Europe with the way it is with the Azov battalion and has been, you know, the last eight years like this, it's just incredible. Nine years, whatever. Was it years? It is, uh, yeah, uh, nine years. It is just incredible that they have been able to get away with this. And, you know, I have in my book a section where I go, yes, Nazis, because the idea now is that, no, oh, that's a Russian talking point and it's not true. Well, my profession is beating dead horses. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I got every footnote in the world about these guys enough to where by the time that section is over, you'll be like, fine, Scott, leave me alone, please. I get it. It's a proven truth that there is not, again, not that the entire military force of Ukraine is the Wehrmacht and they're all Nazis and not that their entire political leadership are Nazis, but there are more Nazis in their government, in their military than anywhere else in the world. And it's an accepted fact. And that over the last few years under Poroshenko and then now under Zelensky, when they try to seek peace, the Nazis say, I'll kill you. And then they back down. And the New York Times, I got the quotes where the New York Times says, these are not idle threats. These guys have overthrown the government there before. Of course, with a little help from their American friends. But they said Zelensky, boy, if he does this Minsk deal and tries to implement this Minsk deal like he agreed to, he'll hang from a lamppost on the main drag in Kiev, is what Andrew Belitsky, the founder of the Aesop Battalion, says. And, you know, a critic of mine said, oh, yeah, where's Belitsky now? As though, like, oh, what, he's gone out to pasture? I'll tell you where he is. He's special advisor to the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian army right now is where he is. Wow. I'm telling you, man, it's, that's a real thing. So now, look, if you just watch TV, what you probably get is just the war started a year ago. If you're lucky, you'll get the war started in 2014 when Russia seized Crimea. But Russia seized Crimea after everything I just said. So that's not really the start. That's like saying Pearl Harbor began World War II, whatever. Yeah. There's more to it than that. Truncating the antecedents, Bob Hicks says. Yep. So, but what happened in Crimea was that, first of all, there was a massacre of these communists who were clashing with the Nazis. And the communists sought shelter in the trade union building in Odessa. And the Nazis firebombed it and killed them all in sort of a mini Waco. I think 45-something people were killed. It's not very many of a Waco. It was a pretty bad massacre. And people were jumping out the windows to their deaths, 9-11 style. So, you know, it was really ugly. And there was a huge controversy. And then four former Ukrainian presidents wrote a letter that said now is the time to kick Russia out of the Sevastopol naval base. And they were a little more polite about it. They said it's time to, to break or end the Kharkiv Pact. Well, that's the deal that says that Russia can keep their base as Sevastopol under lease. So it was only then when four presidents wrote this, former presidents wrote this letter saying now is the time to do this. Only then did Putin say, fine, 
and send in what he called, you know, what the Americans called the little green men. And that was he had his Marines and sailors take off all their insignia. And I guess some special operations guys take off all their insignia and just go outside and stand around on street corners with rifles and prove that our boots show this is our territory now. And virtually no one was killed. I think Wikipedia says six people were killed, but they don't conclusively show in any of those sources there that any of those people were killed by the Russian military at all. I think there were just, you know, a couple of people got shot fighting amongst each other. I know that back then there was footage of the Russian soldiers telling some Ukrainian soldiers, I think fired over their heads and said, hey, you boys ought to turn around and get out of here. And they said, okay. And that was the end of that. So it was a coup de main is what the French call one big decisive battle or move. In this case, it wasn't even a battle. In this case, they just kind of flew right in and walked right in, walked right off of their bases, walked down the street, drove down the street, took over the whole place. Now, the population of Crimea is like something like 60% ethnic Russian, 20%, I think this is right, about 20% Ukrainian, about 10% Tartar, and maybe I'm missing 10% somewhere else, or maybe it's 20% Tatar, but the 60% are Russians. And the Crimean Peninsula belonged to Russia ever since the 1780s. In 1783, Catherine the Great, I guess, bought it at gunpoint from the Turks. I need to go back and read up on that. But anyway, that was when they took control of the thing. It was the same year that we made peace with Britain to end the Revolutionary War, four years before the Constitution was written. So it belongs to Russia like Massachusetts belongs to the United States of America, pretty much. Think of Hawaii and Alaska. I mean, Hawaii wasn't even a state. It was just a territory when the Japanese bonded. That was everything else. It might as well have been Virginia. At that point, they'd only stolen it. Just what, 50 years before, something like that? Not even. So point is, the Russians weren't going to lose that base. So they took the place over. And Putin actually later joked about this. He said, oh, do I have this in the book? Oh, I do. It's in there. He says, we thought about Maybe we'd go down to Sevastopol to visit our NATO friends at their new naval base for the holidays. And then we thought, nah, you know, it'd be better would be if we keep the base and you guys come and visit them. <laughs> like, you know, our American partners, they're invited to stop by and be friends anytime. But we're keeping the damn base. Oh, sorry. Christian show. We're keeping the goddamn base <laughs> in Texan translation. So... Then the war broke out in the East, and that was what got really ugly, was because you had these groups that seized control of different towns in the East, possibly with Russian instigation to various degrees, although it's not fair to say that they're all just sock puppets or whatever. These are people who, it's just Novo Russia, and it's not just like ancient, or not quite ancient, but hundreds of years old Russian territory, but it's also part of the legacy of the Soviet Union was that I think even after the war, never mind the whole Demor in the 30s, but I think after the war, Stalin moved a bunch of people out of eastern Ukraine and moved a bunch of Russians in. So sins of the grandfathers and that kind of thing. But that's a big part of the reason why you have such a heavy ethnic Russian and Russian linguistic presence and everything in the far east of Ukraine was because of former machinations of the Soviets. On the other hand, the border between Ukraine and Russia is where Lenin drew it. And so it could have been possibly, you know, someone could have brought this up 
that maybe at the time that Ukraine and Russia separated at the fall of the Soviet Union, that maybe they should have negotiated the status of these far eastern provinces with Russia then, instead of kicking the can down the road. But anyway, none of this had gone wrong for 24 years until Barack Obama overthrew the government in Kiev for the second time in 10 years, right? The Russians have leased that base as Sevastopol. The people of the Donbass kept winning elections. They weren't at war. What happened was Obama and Kerry and Newland and Pyatt made this mess. They overthrew the government. We got to make it sail before Putin figures out how to torpedo it. Well, guess what? It didn't work out. It turned into this massive crisis. And as soon as these people took over these town government buildings in the major towns in the Far East, at Obama's insistence, the president himself on the record at Obama's insistence, they attacked and launched what they called a war on terrorism and started bombing people with heavy artillery and airstrikes and tanks and the rest. A massive assault on the East. And to them, oh, they just claimed it was all Russians that they're fighting. That's not true. And I have great sourcing on this from the OSCE and from CJ Chivers. I'm not sure, or Chivers, if you're familiar with him, the former Marine from the New York Times. I'm not saying I like his reporting all the time, but I would say that he does have real expertise and knows what he's talking about a lot of the time compared to a lot of his New York Times colleagues anyway. And anyway, there's all kinds of different reporting that shows that the Russian presence in the East during this war was very light. You could say, you know, deniable so-called volunteers, special operations forces with no insignia coming across, some equipment and things like that. But even then, we have testimony from the OSCE and these other experts saying that actually the so-called rebels, they call them the Russian back separatists. I prefer rebels because separatists isn't even necessarily right. I mean, they weren't necessarily at, at the beginning seeking to join Russia, but just autonomy within Ukraine, like essentially like full statehood and federalism inside Ukraine. But they were armed, certainly in the beginning, mostly by defecting army units that took their side and switched sides brought their weapons with them. And this is what, when I mentioned C.J. Chivers there from the New York Times, this guy's a weapons expert, a munitions expert. So he can look at all these weapons and say, these are not Russian weapons. These are Soviet weapons that the Ukrainians have been holding on to all these years. And that now the main Ukrainian army has defected and brought their weapons with them in this civil war. And then, so the war was really bad. And I think, what, five, 6,000 people were killed in the, from the spring to the fall of 2014. And then they had what was called the Minsk deal of, two, of September 2014, where they agreed to stop with the airstrikes and the heavy artillery and pull their people back, have this kind of gray zone between them, of no man's land, and some other stipulations, and including begin to work on a ceasefire and autonomy for the eastern provinces and all this. But the war continued. I don't know if it was quite as bad as it had been in the summer, but the war continued through the winter of 14 into 15. And then in the February of 2015, they had the Minsk II deal. Now, in both of these cases, I should say, was Angela Merkel and Francois Holland from France, the chancellor and the president, who said, we have to do this. We cannot have this war continue. And Merkel actually came to America and met with Obama and told him, listen, like she flew all the way west 
to meet with the president and say, listen, I'm going to go and meet with Putin and make a deal. And Obama gave her his blessing and they went and they made the deal. Now, after the Minsk II deal, some of those strictures had been applied. So they, you have not had airstrikes and, and you didn't have, I guess, the heavier artillery and some of those restrictions. That stuff had been implemented. But the ceasefire never really held. You had more of a situation of what they call low-level fighting. But we're talking about artillery shells going back and forth. So one of those comes through your living room window. Hey, nothing low-level about that. Then blow your family to bits. And there's been, they said the OSCE, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is a multinational-sponsored institution that's in charge of observing the so-called ceasefire or lack thereof. They reported that 14,000 people were killed between 2014 and 2022 in this thing. And they don't break it down. I don't think we have the numbers for like all the way through, but I believe there's a time period that's like 2018 through 21. And they say that 80% of the casualties in that time frame were on the Donbass side of the line, the so-called rebel side of the line being bombed by their own government in Kiev, sponsored by the United States. Now, as I said, these Nazis mean business. And they had threatened to overthrow and kill Poroshenko, and they had threatened to overthrow and kill Zelensky too. Both of whom, you know, wanted peace or wanted to seek peace, at least at times, and were prevented from doing so. And where was I going with that? I'm sorry, the dog is squeaking a toy out there and distracting me. I lost my train of thought. Let me see if I can find it. I hope you can't hear the dog and her dang toy. I can't hear the dog okay, at all. Good. You're good. So let's see. You know, these right-wing groups are a real problem. And then you had all kinds of different experts, but most namely, probably most recognizable to the audience would be Stephen Cohen, who was a Russia historian and expert and the husband, he's dead now, but he's the husband of the publisher of The Nation magazine, Katrina Vandenhuevel. And... I think he may have written this, but I know for a fact I can cite that uh, Aaron Maté interviewed him. And he told Aaron Maté in, oh, I'm going to call it 19, that, listen, Zelensky needs, or this might have been before Zelensky, he was elected in 19. I'm not sure if this was before or after he, him specifically, but regardless, the Ukrainian president, he needs America's help to disband and disarm these Nazi groups with his military needs our backup to do that, to nullify that threat against him so that he can seek peace in the East. And whether we have a nuclear war or not might depend on it. But this is what we need. We need for the Trump government to tell Zelensky, you can borrow seven of our best CIA guys and you're going to identify who are all the most dangerous Nazi leaders and we're going to put them in prison. And then we're going to disband their militias and we're going to make their power pale compared to the state monopoly on violence around here. And then the president will be free to seek peace without this threat, this credible threat. Again, as even the New York Times admitted, a credible threat that they would hang him from a lamppost if he sought peace. And then what happened was that didn't happen. Jacob, the Obama government, the Trump government, and the Biden government had no such intention of saying to Zelensky or Poroshenko and Zelensky, what do you need us to do to help you achieve peace here? That was not the program. It never was. And 
I don't know if this is true or not. I guess it must be. I could see how this is modern spin, looking back kind of retroactively trying to justify a thing. But Angela Merkel and Francois Holland and Zelensky, I guess was it Poroshenko or was it Zelensky? I think it was Zelensky, have said that Minsk was a ruse, that all they were doing essentially, Merkel had said this most explicitly, and I think Holland said, yes, that's correct. Merkel said, essentially, we were just giving them time to rearm. Our diplomacy with Russia, we didn't mean what we said. We were just trying to buy the Ukrainians time so we could build up their military so that when the conflict lit back up, they would be ready for Russia. So, I mean, this is, if that's true, I kind of think that she's really just spinning for the fact that she tried to negotiate and it didn't work and it came to this anyway. And now everybody kind of retroactively is saying, this guy's Hitler. And if you ever spoke with him, then you're Neville Chamberlain at Munich and all of this kind of thing where you got cooties all over you. So now she wants to kind of say, oh no, I was just manipulating that fool Putin and making him believe that I was, be you know what I mean? I kind of, yeah, I kind of read yeah. it that way. But you know what? Like, honestly, it doesn't matter. Because once she said that, then the worst case interpretation is the one that carries the day, right? And the worst case interpretation is that, yeah, that's right, she was playing Putin and now she's bragging about it. That like, yeah, that Vladimir Putin is a sucker and an idiot and he should never believe a German foreign minister again. Because all we do is lie. If that's what the Americans want. If that's what Barack Obama says, and that's what we're going to do is pretend to negotiate and not mean it. I mean, what can you say? That's not a very good way to run an empire, man. I'm telling you. Um, so now... Well, it's good if you want to instigate war and... Sure. Send yeah, let's do that. Thousands of young men and women to their deaths fighting for the elites. It's, you know... <laughs> if that's the way you run around your empire, that's a great way to do yeah. it. All right, so then Donald Trump comes in, and as you know, he's completely falsely accused of treason with the Kremlin, as I already said three times. Twice, anyway. But look, I should be specific because people don't know me. Who the hell am I? I'm not a Trump guy. I've never been a Trump guy. Even when I was a kid, I didn't like him. I thought, what a jerk. In the 1980s, when I saw him on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And I didn't support him for president. I did, Jacob, however, root for him. I would have never voted for him. And he was just as violent of a warmongering president as I knew he would be. But I hated the other guys more if that helps people kind of understand my position on it. I mean, watching him destroy Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton is one of the greatest thrills of my life. It doesn't mean that I supported his holding of the power that they sought instead. It just means that I really, really, really appreciate him stopping them for us. It's probably the greatest thing he ever did with his life, was stand in between the United States of America and a Hillary Clinton presidency. Can you imagine? We'd have been dead 10 years ago, or not that many, five. So anyway, Trump comes in and as people should know by now, I'm not going to do the whole damn thing for you, but people should know that the Democrats cooked up Russiagate essentially by having the FBI frame this guy Papadopoulos and then by hiring this law firm to hire uh, essentially one, the so-called computer experts who blame the DNC hack on the Russians hired another group to spread this rumor that Trump had a secret server that was communicating with the Russian Alpha Bank, which was, I guess, how they were secretly handling him. And another one was they sent people to intercept web traffic around Trump Tower 
in order to try to suss out Russian influence in there and spin it. And they later just committed total fraud and copied and pasted lies in there, but were easily discovered for doing so. And then another one was these Russian Yada phones, which that one was essentially a psyop that they tried on the FBI that never really got out into the media until later, I don't think. And the FBI didn't buy it. They saw it through, but it was one of the things is this law firm Perkins Coy and the Hillary Clinton campaign itself hired them. And then they hired the guy that wrote the Steele dossier, the guy that said that Russia hacked the DNC, the guy that said Trump's server was communicating with the Russian bank, the guy that said that mysterious Russian traffic is all around Trump Tower and the mysterious Russian brand mobile phones are all around Trump Tower and then later the White House. All of that came from this same law firm. And they were just lying. And the FBI knew they were lying and the CIA knew they were lying and Barack Obama knew they were lying. And we can prove that. We know that now because Trump's head of intelligence finally, Ratliff, finally released the memo where John Brennan briefs Obama that Hillary Clinton is setting up Trump on some fake Russia crap to cover for her email scandal. And of course, to cover for the fact that she and her husband, Bill, were the ones who were close to Russia. And she was making pro-Russia calls on licensing Russian companies taking ownership over American uranium mines while Bill Clinton was getting paid half a million dollars, $500,000 to give a speech in Russia. That's New York Times stuff. So this was, if anybody was compromised by the Russians, it was Hillary and Bill. And they just decided to turn this whole thing from instead of what a scandal, because the emails revealed their corruption, how they stole the election from Bernie Sanders in the primaries. And remember the head of the DNC had to resign and all this stuff, it was really bad. So they just turned the whole thing around and tried to put it all on Trump and pretend that he was a Russian agent. And then when that failed to stop the election, they panicked and doubled down, tripled down, because they couldn't, the plan was, as, as Comey himself admitted, well, look, we were all operating in an environment where Hillary Clinton's election was assured. So they were just doing this dirty trick to keep him from winning. It was supposed to work, but it didn't work. So then what they do, they launched a special counsel down. investigation. Yeah, they tried to overthrow him under the 25th Amendment and launch this ridiculous thing and pretend to criminally investigate it for years and hem in and rein in, as they put it over and over again, his policy, especially on Russia. He goes to Helsinki, he meets with Putin and they go, treason summit. But based on what? And I swear, Putin gave Trump a soccer ball and they go, that soccer ball's probably got bugs in it. The whole thing is just completely crazy. Well, and it's just so funny how, now some of it was obviously fabricated, but the people in the media and the American people who got so animated and upset over those accusations, it's like, oh, you mean the idea of a foreign country intervening in our election and installing a like pro-foreign nation leader to run our country? You don't like that? Huh. Seriously. And hmm. look, even <laughs> pretend it was even true for a moment. What was right. it that they did? They leaked some true emails from Hillary's campaign and the Democratic National Committee that just <laughs> revealed them to be who they are in real life. And then the other thing they did yeah. supposedly was they bought some Facebook ads, which is Gareth Porter showed better than anyone, influenced nobody. Most of the ads were bought after the election and they weren't partisan at all. And it was just a clickbait farm, a troll farm, and nothing to do with anything. And meanwhile, you had TV going, Oh, so it was the Russians that were behind the Black Lives Matter movement to destabilize our country. And it's just like, dude, you know, you guys. Anyway, 
<laughs> so look, that had the effect of reining Trump in on Russia, of course, bigly, as he would say, and preventing him from doing the right thing. But again, he's not a libertarian. He's got a lot of very hawkish instincts. Oh, and yeah. so he didn't seem to have any problem in, well, first of all, he didn't even seem to know that he had overseen the addition of Montenegro and Northern Macedonia to NATO. Which, think about how insane that is. That we gave a war guarantee to Northern Macedonia and Montenegro. But anyway, like they're going to come and fight in our war for us. Oh, good. I can't wait for that. <laughs> and not that we need to be in any wars. So I don't even think he knew about that because Tucker Carlson was like, man, what are we doing? And he's like, yeah, I know. And Tucker's like, yeah, but you're the guy in the chair right now. You don't need to do that. But Trump was like, yeah, that makes no sense at all. Yeah, huh? Look it up, man. Turn off the TV and read for a day, Mr. President. Yeah, they, yeah get off the Twitter. Yeah, or a couple hours a day at least. So he did add two countries to NATO, but then he also had no problem authorizing his military to vastly increase their provocations. So flying his bombers to 12 and a half miles right off of their coast, which to their international waters, but trying to essentially force them to turn on all their radars and their defensive measures and everything to test them. Essentially practice for a first strike. I mean, imagine if the Russian nuclear bombers were constantly flying off of our east and west coast, 12 and a half miles to test all of our defenses to see what kind of radars we're going to light up as they rehearse a first strike on New York and D.C., you know? Oh, I'm sure that's nothing. They just, hey, that's the world. It's our unipolar superpower world. They just got to learn to live in it. That's, right, oh. right. You know, if Mexico is building missile launchers that could be lined with nuclear weapons near our border, that'd be fine. Uh, and, yeah. you know, if it's like, you know, it's no big deal. It's just business well, look, as usual. We're good and they're bad. That's the difference. It's we're us and they're I mean, them. the Republicans lose their mind at the idea of, like, immigrants coming here. They call that an invasion. And it's like, okay... But they'd be completely fine with foreign militaries doing all the things that we're doing overseas right. to and near Russia. Like, it's just, it's hypocrisy. And like you and I both, like you've said it and I've said it, like, it's not that I'm, okay, none of all what we're saying means, oh, it was good that Russia invaded. doesn't mean- Oh, I'm not even to that it. part yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. So let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll have that fight in a second. No, no, I totally agree with you, of course. Okay, so look, so Trump also he tried to, or at least his government tried to overthrow the government of Kazakhstan and of Belarus. They tried to constantly attack the Nord Stream pipeline and all that. I mentioned Belarus. I guess most of my stuff in my Trump section is not as much stuff that he did as much as just things that are going on there. One thing that's worth mentioning from the Trump chapter for sure is this Rand Corporation study that came out in 2019 and, you know, it takes an hour or two to go through the whole thing, maybe, but it's totally worth it. It's called extending Russia, as in overextending them, provoking them into being stupid and wasting resources and trying to figure out a way to keep them off balance at all costs. And essentially, it's a blueprint for Trump and Biden's foreign policy since then. I don't know if you can... I've looked and I've never seen an absolute direct tie where they admit out loud that Yes, this is definitely the plan we're following, but it's definitely the plan they're following, including aid to the terrorists in Syria, trying to obstruct the Nord Stream pipeline, trying to overthrow the government of Belarus again, increasing support to the Ukrainians, trying to destabilize countries in Central Asia and all of that stuff. Uh, hey, didn't Trump 
funnel a bunch of weapons and more military stuff into Ukraine? Yeah, and it's funny because actually I had this wrong that Obama was afraid to send him weapons, but that's not really true. He was sending him weapons and Trump essentially kept doing the same thing and was not okay. sending them as much as selling them weapons, right. um, licensing the transfers. But it was, you know, and then especially, I guess, towards the end of his presidency, he increased those transfers. And I guess, you know, I may be wrong about that. I think at least at first, when he first started in 2017 and 18, it was sales. But I should probably go back and check about 2019 and 20 about direct transfers from our military to theirs and that kind of deal. I would not be surprised. I think. Do you think Trump was kind of incentivized to be harder on Russia just because of all the yeah. crap going on around him? I, I mean, can't just... find this anywhere, man. I could swear that this is true. I even had it in my notes that it was like BuzzFeed and the date for my note that you know, when I went looking for it, I couldn't find it anywhere. I found a pale imitation of it in regards to Syria. But what I was looking for, if anybody knows where this is or can find it, please tweet it at me or something. But I could swear it was one of Trump's sons. Right now I have Eric Trump saying this about Syria, but I could have swore it was Trump Jr. had said about Ukraine that they can't call us Russian puppets. Now look at all the weapons we're pouring into Ukraine. And just as simple as that, right? Yeah. Like that was why they framed yeah. them. And that was the result that they were after was here they got to hem in their policy, make sure that Trump can't scale back and make a deal with Russia at the expense of the Ukrainians. I remember like when Ben Shapiro was on the Bill Maher show and you know, Bill Maher was full Trump derangement syndrome mm -hmm. and, you know, Trump's a Russian puppet. And like Shapiro was, and not that I'm a fan of Shapiro, but he was like rightfully pointing out like, hey, look at all these things that Trump's doing though. They're actually like strategically against Russia. Right. <laughs> and Mayor had nothing to say about yeah, it. Yeah, of course, because he didn't look at that because he was caught up in his narrative. So he, he didn't even notice right. that all those things were going on, you know? All right, so then the last thing is Trump ended with tearing up these important treaties, right? He tore up the INF Treaty and have it on good authority. He did this not because he wanted to install medium-range missiles in Europe, because he wants to install medium-range missiles in the Philippines to threaten China. And... But guess what? That was why the Russians were breaking the deal too. Like they probably were in violation of it. I don't know that for sure, but I believe they probably were in violation of the treaty. But that was because they wanted to put them on their frontier with China. Just like us. Not that they're warmongering against China the way we are right now, but they still have a lot of Siberia to protect. And so they have their deterrent there. So in other words, the Americans were breaking the spirit of the thing with the Mark 41 missile launchers already. Then the Russians started developing this rocket that supposedly was the inappropriate range over the minimum and or over the maximum and but under the minimum for a medium range allowable missile. But then the Americans, instead of saying, all right, Russia, let's get back to the negotiating table and hash this out and figure this out. Instead, they went, aha, you're breaking the treaty. Well, we're going to tear it up then. And that was it. And so now this great tree, Ronald Reagan's great achievement from 1987 that kept medium-range missiles out of Europe for 30 years is now over. And we got the better end of that deal, by the way, anyway, because, of course, they, they screwed over Gorbachev, who didn't realize that we could still keep missiles on our ships in the Baltic Sea. That's essentially might as well be in Poland. That's just as close. And so we kind of had that loophole anyway. That gave us the advantage, but they gave that up. And so now I guess it's just a matter of time before they start deploying medium range missiles in Europe, pointed at Russia again, now that the treaty doesn't stand in the way. And the other treaty tore up was the, the Open Skies Treaty, which was like Eisenhower's idea, which Nixon had ratified in 72, that allowed for 
unarmed military overflights of our country by Russian planes so that they can, and over their country by American planes, so that we can reassure ourselves that the other side is not preparing for war. And so it's meant to keep the temperature cool. Seems reasonable. Right. You don't want it. <laughs> And look, you can see the pinheaded American thinking here, Jacob, is, well, look, we got all these satellites and all our early warning system and all these things. Advantage us. We don't need overflights over Russia. We can see them brushing their teeth. We know everything. So they don't have that. Well, good. Why would we give them that advantage? And the answer is, dummy, you want them to fly over the air bases in Missouri and say, look, the B-2s are not rolling around. The B-2s are in their hangars where they belong. That's what you want the Russians to report back to their bosses later today and tomorrow and the next day. The B-2s aren't flying. The Americans aren't coming. That's a good thing. That's why Ike Eisenhower thought it was a good thing. Because it was. And he's smart. And he did a lot of stupid things, but you can't say he was a commie pinko trader because even the Birchers dropped that. The Birchers didn't even think he was a communist. They were like, oh, I get it. The communists work for the bankers too. That makes more sense. So nobody's called, nobody, not even Robert Welch is calling Eisenhower a commie pinko sympathizer here. That's not what's going on. He was being smart, saying, you know what? Instead of wondering at a height of panic, what's going on on the other side of that iron curtain and what's going on way over there in North America, let's just let each other peek and that'll be better. It makes perfect sense. It's something to get hysterical about if you want, but the fact that it was all Republicans who got this stuff done ought to reassure people that you can sometimes be smart. Sometimes you could do things that if a Democrat did it, you'd call him a woman, but that are perfectly patriotic when Ronald Reagan does it like sign a treaty banning mid-range nuclear missiles from Europe that worked. Thank you very much for 32 years before Donald Trump tore it up. Now, Biden comes in and Biden's just the worst, man. He starts pouring more weapons into Ukraine, starts threatening Russia, starts having massive exercises. He meets with Putin in the summer of 21 and nothing is accomplished whatsoever. One month later, the very first day of September, he brings... Zelensky to the White House and issues a proclamation promising that we're definitely doing this road to NATO membership thing like George W. Bush said, and we're doubling down on all those things. Had the Defense Department also release a big paper. I'm sorry, I forget all the names of them all, but I have them all in my footnotes of, you know, their strategic partnership plan and including, you know, the interoperability, focusing on interoperability of the Ukrainian military and making them essentially de facto members of NATO. And one of the last straws was probably these Turkish drone strikes in violation of the deal in October of 2021. And then they just kept rubbing the Russians' nose in it all through October and November and continuing to announce that, yes, we're bringing Ukraine into NATO at least later, if not sooner, and we're going to make them de facto members anyway. And right. Putin, and at some point, it's like not marrying this girl, but you know, living with yeah. her and we're raising kids exactly. together and we have a bank account together. It's like, yeah, you're <laughs> common law married in Texas, pal. <laughs> so now, listen, I talked with Choss Freeman the other day. So you don't have to take antiwar.com's word for it here, okay? Choss Freeman went with Nixon to China in 73 and, you know, was the ambassador to Saudi Arabia and all kinds of stuff. 
famous storied career as one of America's most important former diplomats. And he told me on the show last week that when Putin issued his proposed treaty in December of 21, that that absolutely was a serious offer. The Americans spin it and say, oh no, that was just show. That was like Madeleine Albright at the Rambouillet deal, trying to start the Kosovo war, offering a deal that, the, that Milosevic couldn't possibly accept. That's what Putin's doing here. He just wants to be able to say, see, I tried. But Charles Freeman says, no, I don't buy that. I think he was trying. And I think that the stipulations in his deal obviously went a little bit too far, but that wasn't his fallback position. That was his opening position in the negotiation. Right. So, did we try? Like, if it is that, look, if Putin gets to run off with Biden's daughter, then obviously this is just an insult, right? And he doesn't mean it. But it didn't say stuff like that. It was the absolute reasonable negoti- uh, basis for a real negotiation. The Americans treated it like it was not serious, like they were being mocked by the Russians. Oh, you dare to bring us this ridiculous proposal when it wasn't ridiculous. You said neutrality for Ukraine. Stop trying to bring them into NATO. Promise you're going to not bring them into NATO. Put it in a treaty. Put it in their constitution. Promise to stop expanding NATO eastward. Live up to Bill Clinton's promise from 1997 in the NATO-Russia Council Founding Act to not move your military equipment into the east. In other words, get your anti-missile missile launchers out of Romania and Poland where they don't belong. And all these things. And I mean, if you go back, they talked about this thing about 1997 and the Founding Act. They treated that like that was absolutely insane. They cited that to show that Putin is not serious at all. It is serious. So why is he bringing up the Founding Act? Well, it was an agreement. And 1997 was like 25 years ago, not 250 years ago. This is not some expired old nothing. This was a sworn promise, which Bill Clinton actually later bragged that, yeah, until I wake up one morning and decide it's not anymore. I got the quote of him saying that. Um, Honey, I know we promised to be with each other in sickness and health, but that was 30 years There's, ago. Come yeah, on. man, who means that? That doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> and so they treated it as though it was completely unserious. And that's because they were completely unserious. Jacob, they didn't want to negotiate a solution to the war. I'll put it this way, because I don't want to like overshoot my skis here, because there ain't no need for me to speculate. I can just tell you what I know, right? What I know is that they were willing to tell Russia you better not do this. They put it in the Washington Post. Russia's going to invade Ukraine. Hey, everybody, Russia's going to invade Ukraine. You better not. And they said that for two months straight. You got to hand it to them. They did. Two and a half months straight, they did do that. But they were not willing to negotiate in good faith. They were not willing to give one inch. And I think that's because, fine, plan A was, oh, what's he going to do? Really invade? Nah, he'll back down. Fine. But plan B was if he invades, good. And I got a whole collection and I have a section of the book that's my collection. I probably should dig deep, make sure I'm not missing any, but I have a hell of a lot of all of these people adjacent to power and in power last year saying what we wanted to do is give them another Afghanistan like we did in the 1980s. Now, this is just four months after America finally lost the Afghan war. And these guys got Afghanistan in their mouth. We've been there for 20 years, supposedly cleaning up the mess 
from the last time we did this 10 years before that and 20 years before that. And these guys have got the word Afghanistan in their mouth as the model of what we want to do to Russia, to bog them down and bleed them to bankruptcy, which if you read enough already, you see. This was Bin Laden's plan for America in Afghanistan that we had granted them. They were mimicking that same policy of bait the large power, the superpower, or in this case, the regional power, into invading so you can bog them down and bleed them to bankruptcy, force them out the long way and the hard way. I mean, hell, maybe Tony Blinken read enough already and was like, man, Bin Laden is brilliant to mimic Brzezinski in this way, and now I'm going to copy him again. And, yeah, and who cares how many Ukrainian and Russian lives have to die? Oh, no, the they process. don't give a damn about that. Clearly, they don't. They, they don't, don't even think about that. That's just part of it, man. That's the game. That's the job. You don't want to kill people. Don't be the Secretary of State, Jacob. That's how, that's just business, man. That's how it's done when you work for a national government or this national government for sure. No, but without a government, who would keep warlords from taking over, Scott? Yeah, seriously, you've got a warlord, don't you? <laughs> And so then that was the deal, man, was they refused to negotiate in good faith. And in fact, even right before the invasion broke out, according to the OSCE, there was a massive expansion in the shelling of the Donbass by the Ukrainian government. And I even have, see, I'm giving too much of my book away, man, but I don't care. You guys can Google all this stuff, man. It's out there. Your book ain't going to have as many footnotes as mine, even if you plagiarize me. But I've got... The president of France, Emmanuel Macron told Putin, hey, listen, don't fall for any provocations. And I think it wasn't even taunting him. I think he was telling him, look, I'll talk to you in two days, but between now and then, don't fall for any provocations, okay? It's what the president of France said to Putin right before the war. And then, they, and then there was a massive escalation of the shelling of the Donbass before they invaded. Now, look, a friend of mine asked me in my speech at the Lincoln Memorial a couple of weeks ago on February the 19th, I said that Putin and his men bear their share of responsibility for this war. And a friend emailed me and asked me, what do you even mean by that? I mean, you make the case of how America caused it to such a degree, yeah? And well, the Russians escalated the war by 10,000 times. That's not forgivable. To say that the war really started in 2014 and not 22, yeah, you got a point. But to say that Russia invaded in 22, yeah, you got a point. That's not the same thing. And I got to tell you, you know, just in terms of like metaphors, I'm not exactly sure because the law, who defines it? Russia's on the Security Council. But to me, the way I look at it, Jacob, is that America had Russia's back to the wall, but not necessarily in a corner. And I think that Putin could have tried other options before resorting to the invasion the way that he did it. And I think that he did miscalculate. I know a lot of people get who are, I don't want to say on Russia's side of this, but at least people who are critical of America's role in this war seem to think everything's going as planned. I don't think so. I mean, they clearly, I think Daniel Davis had it right that the Russians invaded from in four major strikes at once, and then all four of them failed. And if they had consolidated their forces and had gone through and taken the territory they meant to take and hold it all, then they could have done that. But instead, all four of their advances were stymied. And then ultimately in the South, they were successful in seizing Mariupol and all the land between Russia and the Crimean Peninsula, that so-called land bridge to the Crimean Peninsula. 
Eventually, they ended up taking most of Kherson province as well, although they had to give up some of it also. They still don't control all of the Donbass, which is Donetsk and Luhansk, these two easternmost provinces. And I'm absolutely certain that the number of Russian casualties is being vastly embellished by the Ukrainian government. They claim they've killed more than 100,000 Russian soldiers so far and that kind of thing. I just don't believe that for a minute. They haven't had the opportunity to fight that big of pitched battles where they could kill that many people at a time. And guys are absolutely getting blown to bits over there, but in ones and twos and fives and tens, not by the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands every day, something like that, which is what it would take, or at least hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds every day for more than a year, which is just not plausible. But it is plausible that like on both sides that more than 100,000 have been killed or right around there. The UN says something like 7,000 civilians, which is, I guess, thanks to the fact that many people were able to flee from the east to the east into Russia, and many people were able to flee west to western Ukraine or into other nations in Europe, and were able to just essentially evacuate the battlefield during the war. It's not like in Iraq War II where everybody's just stuck in place, getting blown to bits, you know? So at least there's that. I mean, 7,000 is a hell of a lot of dead people, but compared to the level of violence that's going on there, you could imagine it being much, much worse. But they've completely destroyed the country. And it's just, the whole thing is absolutely tragic. And, and it is, it's an artillery and tank war more than anything, which means that people are just getting their body parts blown off and their heads blown off, their torsos blown to bits. Human smoke, like that book about World War II, Whereas like the guy's just pink mist, gone. Where's Jimmy? Gone. Boots left on the ground. Uh, that kind of thing. So it's really, really ugly fighting, man. Really, really ugly fighting. And I have to say, like, to me, this is like the greatest political scandal of my lifetime and maybe like of since Truman nuked Nagasaki or something. I can't, there's just, you know, and I hate Bill Clinton and W. Bush more and better than anybody. And especially W. Bush, what he did in his unforced, aggressive war against Iraq and the forces that he set in motion with that thing. Oh, my God. To be St. Peter and pull the trap door on that guy. I want that job. Even if I'm going to die early to take it. But just the recklessness with which the Biden government is handling this entire problem is just mind-boggling. It's just crazy. And it's just, I know, yeah, 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 I'm the guy from antiwar.com. And so, of course, I'm going to think that or something. But no, I'm sorry. I mean, that's just a scientific fact. You can't have a war, a proxy war with Russia right on their border and one where the Americans are openly boasting about the $100 billion worth of weapons that they're pouring in, all the intelligence assistance that they're granting, all of the training of the Ukrainian military that they're doing. I mean, this is just absolutely insane. The level of antagonism that they are building up between the United States and Russia here. I mean, this is like the start of the Cold War under Harry Truman, which we weren't able to end for 50 years. For 50 years. And almost all of us died over and over and over again. You and me almost died before we ever had a chance to be born in misunderstandings and accidents and mistakes and outright brinksmanship and tension and arms racing in the Cold War. It's completely insane 
that they were allowed to do this at all the first time. And now we're going to let them do this again. And man, look, when they first created NATO and said, we have to stay in Europe forever in order to keep the peace and all of this stuff, they said then, I think this is Truman himself, but certainly the argument went that, look, if we were just talking about the Russian empire in Eastern Europe, screw them. I mean, what are you going to do, man? Who cares? But that's not the thing, man. It's communism, the red flag, the world revolution, totalitarianism, Stalinism is coming for the whole planet Earth. If we can't tie it up and wrap it up and contain it in this box, which they already did rule all of Eastern Europe, of course, all the way to halfway across Germany. And so that was the threat. But communism's dead and gone 30 years now, 32 and well, 31. And Russia is ruled by a guy who, yeah, he's a strong man in a way, he keeps getting elected, but he keeps getting elected. He doesn't cancel the elections. He keeps holding them and is essentially like a center-right Republican, right? He's a corporatist, corrupt, oligarchical strongman. He's the Jeb Bush of, well, I don't want to say that because Jeb is such a loser and a dork and whatever. He's, <laughs> he's, I mean, not to praise Putin, but I'm going to say he's not a loser and a dork. He's different than that. He would be like if a very capable... I don't know, Republican military officer got elected or something like that. Somebody, you know, was maybe you could compare him to like a, a Mike Pompeo. If Mike Pompeo was a, like a strong leader as president for a long time. I don't know. Not really a very good. Trump, if he was even more of an actual like neocon warmonger. Yeah, I mean, both of those are poor yeah. comparisons because there's Pompeo too is such a dunce. I was trying to come up with like somebody somewhat capable over there on the Republican side. Like anyway, you can imagine Putin being a Republican in America. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, so he sure. Is. He said he's a Christian. He's a capitalist. He's a conservative. He's not a radical. They claim oh, I should bring this up to debunk it. They claim over and over that Putin simply wants to recreate the Russian Empire or even worse, the Soviet Empire, and that's why we have to do this is to stop him to contain him and. It doesn't matter that he's been in office for 20 years and he never did that before. It doesn't matter that when he sees Crimea, Barack Obama and Michael McFaul and all these hawks admitted that, oh, come on, we made him do that. That was a reaction to the coup that we did in Kiev, man. He was, as Obama said, that was a reaction to the transition of the government that we helped implement or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So they admitted that. And they're just hiding behind that now. Just like Osama hates your freedom. They can't admit that anything I just said is relevant to this. So they just have to go, oh, yeah, no, Putin is an imperialist. Putin just wants to take over things. Yeah, but it's just, we're the imperial. It, it, it's what gets my blood boiling. It's like, and I know you like Star Wars, and I use the Star Wars analogy all the time. It's like, people think that, like, America, that, like, that, that we're the good guys. That we're, if it's Star Wars, they could say it's the Jedi or the Republic. But no, like... We're pretty much the Galactic yeah. Empire. And that's I the mean, lesson we're pretty Star Wars, man, is that the Republic yeah. was the Empire. But Chancellor yeah. Palpatine... It's like when Palpatine says, I love democracy. He was a dictator <laughs> for 15 years before he called himself emperor, right? He'd already right. turned the thing. The Jedi Knights were the ones who conquered the galaxy with the stormtroopers, calling themselves heroes the whole time. And we have, like our Delta Force and Navy SEAL guys call themselves Jedi Knights. It's like, dude, you guys are the stormtroopers in black from Rogue One. You guys aren't right. Jedi Knights, you know? But right. 
they don't see it. And that doesn't yeah. mean Russia's the good guys. It just means that it's more complicated than and that. Fact, like life wait, isn't just Russia is the CIS. They even that's even the name of their thing. The Confederacy of Independent right. Systems. It's actually the name of the Russian right. Federation there. So this is no listen, <laughs> this is important because well, it's not important, right. but it's Star Wars, so it's kind of important. Is it <laughs> like just what you're saying? It doesn't mean he's the good guy. So look at the first trilogy. I mean, in order, look at the prequel trilogy. The enemy, right, exactly. he's a fake enemy who's a bad guy. And the good guys are actually not really good guys. The good guys are bad guys no, using right. the bad guys as a foil exactly. to do the evil thing. Now, in a second set of movies, Princess Leia and her rebellion, that's not a false flag operation run by the Sith Lords. Those are our heroes. But their crisis is taken advantage of just the same. Remember, he says, I just received word that this, the emperor has dissolved the Senate permanently in the name of the emergency right. because of the civil war, because of Princess Leia's rebellion. And they use that as a foil just as well, whether it's fake or not. So in this case, well, I'm not saying that Putin's fake, like fake opposition, but he ain't Princess Leia. He's much more like Count Dooku. But that doesn't mean that what right. our side is doing is right. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I think people want to attach to the things in America from our past that are good. And I, I get yeah. it, right? Like, I get it. As a lefty, a former lefty, I didn't get it. I kind of came from, like, I mean, all the things you talked about at the beginning about how it was, if you love Jesus and if you love God, if you love church, you love football, then you got to go support these wars in the Middle East. Well, I grew up in that environment and that's what pushed me far to the left. That's what pushed me almost to the brink of giving up my faith in Christianity because I just, like, couldn't believe as I got older and I saw the truth of what was going on in Iraq, the truth of what was going on in Afghanistan and just was sickened by it. So I kind of became, you know, that kind of typical lefty that's like pretty callous towards like American patriotism and all that. But like, I've tried to get over that and try to understand where people are coming from. And they look at the history of America as like a group of people who centered around these ideas of liberty, of self-governance, of independence. And I get that there's something noble in that. There's a core in that that runs right to libertarianism. It runs right to the philosophy mm -hmm. that we both believe in. And I get wanting to hold strong to that. But you gotta, you can't put your head in the sand. You gotta be able to be awake and observe what's going on in the world. And that some movies just depict things as easy good guys and bad guys. But like we just broke down in Star Wars, even then, it's not always that easy. And right. if it's not that easy in a movie, it's not that easy in real life. It's not just angels and demons. It's not just good guys and bad guys. It's like a lot of times it's bad guys and worse right. guys. You know exactly. what I mean? And a lot of people who just have their own agendas, who were just acting, whether it's because of corruption and money, whether it's because they're power hungry or both, or they're just too dumb to realize what they're doing. It's a combination yeah. of all that at once. And that's why the most important thing is to raise awareness to these issues. And that's why I wanted to bring you on first and foremost is to show people more of the history that goes into this. And then two, to be like, you know what? We're not powerless in this situation. If we, as people, just one at a time in our own areas of life, if we decide to take a stand for the truth, if we decide to not just bury our head in the sands, but we decide to call out the lies and the deceit and the war propaganda and to not be fooled by it and to instead try to wake more people up. And if we tell our government, no, we don't want World War III. We don't want this proxy war with Russia. We don't want 
America to be this giant global empire that's policing the world. We don't care about American hegemony. We just want to be able to feed our families and go to church and go to football games and just live our lives in peace. If we make our voices heard, I'm not saying it's going to be easy and maybe we'll fail trying, but gosh, I can't help but feel motivated and fueled to try because I'm not, I'm not going to just sit by and let my kids grow up in a world where the direction that we're headed and say, I didn't try to do something. Yeah. I'm with you, man. I mean, what are you going to do? I'm a Ron Paul guy at the end of the day. And Ron Paul always says, look, at the end of the day, education is the key. You let people know yeah. what's going on. People, they mostly want to do the right thing. They just got to have access to the truth. And then at the end of the day, we'll right. get the government that we deserve. Amen. Scott, I really appreciate you coming on. Before we go, just if you want to give any last minute plugs in terms of like anything you got coming up or just, you know, remind people where they can follow you on Twitter, social media and all that. Well, I'm not doing too many appearances, but I, I am doing some stuff with the Mises Caucus. So people can look that up, the Take Human Action Tour. And I'll be doing, well, I think three or four of those. I'm trying to get myself invited to this big communist anti-war protest in D.C. on the 18th, but I don't think that's probably going to happen, but I might be speaking there if I possibly can. And then otherwise, look, the most important project on the internet is antiwar.com. You want to know all this stuff? Just read antiwar.com every day. And I know it's hard at first, but you'll catch up. It'll be fine. And then <laughs> the Libertarian Institute, I'm the director there, and I got a great group of guys, great group of podcasters and writers, and the great Lori Calhoun. I can't leave her out either. And I'm really proud of Libertarian Institute. And then I wrote a bunch of books and I do a show. I got 5,850 something episodes. I'm not going to quite make 6,000 by my anniversary. My 20th anniversary of the interview show is coming up this April. So I hope I'll be at 5,900 and something by then anyway. And you can find all those for free at scotthorton.org. Sign up for the podcast feed there. And on YouTube and all of that, if you want that. And then I wrote these books and some people liked them, including Ron Paul and Daniel Ellsberg. Fool's Aaron is about Afghanistan. Enough Already is about the terror wars. I have a book about Ron Paul called The Great Ron Paul, which is the transcripts of my interviews of him. And then I have an, one more book, which is called Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which is a collection of interviews all about nuclear weapons, not just why we should get rid of them and why Ronald Reagan thought we should get rid of them but all different aspects of nuclear weapons and the Israeli nuclear program and North Korea and everything under the sun there. Hotter than the sun, that. And then I'm working on Provoked and you can follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. I think that's it. Awesome. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And yeah, I encourage you to go check out Scott's work if you're not familiar with him. And it can be a lot at first, but you know what I did when I started listening to Scott is I just, I literally printed out just like copies of like maps and just started taking notes on, oh, that's I, smart. and that helps you learn more about because because you know what, like a lot of these countries and areas and stuff. I mean, like you learn about in school sure. a little bit, but then when you start like, hearing about it, unless you yeah. can kind of right. So like when you start writing this stuff down and visualizing it and stuff, it can be a lot at first. But and none of us have it all figured out. We're all there's so much to know and learn, but it's just part of that process of being educated, and that's what makes a difference. Like we just said, so. Thank you again, Scott, for coming on. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back again next week with more content. Take care until then. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. 
If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.